I'll say one of my inspirations for this podcast is there was a series that used to run in the Washington Post, and it was like three questions with a local philanthropist. I think that's what it was called. Something like that. They would, they would find a local philanthropist and ask them three questions. Uh, and it was actually, I think my first interview, yeah, my first interview on this podcast was with Barbara Harmon, who's a big-time funder here in D.C. And uh, one of the questions they asked her is, what, is your, what was your favorite season? <laughs> th- she, she, she picked autumn, which is a fine season. But I didn't really learn anything about her as a philanthropist from that question. And the Washington Post had an opportunity to ask a local philanthropist who has a lot of influence in this town three questions. And it should have been serious questions. And I happen to know Barbara, and when she came on my show, she was pretty happy about the opportunity to like give full answers to serious questions. We even yeah. dove farther into her love of autumn <laughs> than the, than the well, post originally was. Wondering. The reason I was left is because I was wondering, did she say something like giving season? Like, you know, like I thought it was going to be some sort of philanthropic response. No. But it wasn't. It was so open-ended. She didn't have to do that. No, and the, you look at the, the entire history of that series, they've never really asked a serious question of anybody. Um, it's just sort of, a, aren't these philanthropists great? Let's, you know, give them a, let's profile them and take up some space in the newspaper. I will say, <laughs> if you want to walk around in D.C. criticizing philanthropists or asking them hard questions, right, you'll get a bit of a reputation. That is <laughs> something that happened to me. Uh, and there are philanthropists who won't speak to me. There are also philanthropists who will speak only to me. So, right, I think you, and it's one of the things that happens in philanthropy is if you want to go out and please everybody, you're going to fail. So oh, absolutely. Absolutely no chance of success on that front. No chance of success. And, in, and, and I kind of measure my success by how many people are like, you know, Hello? think I'm the problem. If you're not cheating, <laughs> then what's the point? Yep. Uh, what is the point? Well, yeah, exactly. If everybody's happy with what you're doing, then you should have some questions about what you're doing. I certainly would. Hello, everybody. This is Dave Moss with the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast, and I'm here with Aaliyah Bakwi Vaughn. Did I get your middle name right? It's Baki. Baki? My last name. That's your. Yeah, my last name before my marriage. Ah, so Baki is your maiden name, and you married Mr. Vaughn. I said, I did. Good. Uh, he sounds like a lucky guy. Um, <laughs> Aaliyah Baki Vaughn. Uh, and one of the things that um, I used to do in the early days of the podcast that I've, it's, I haven't done in a while is I would find a bio from my guest on the internet and then read the bio out loud to them, which is something that, that um, uh, I actually find quite useful in the space. You have a good bio. It's every single sentence of it is relevant. It's not necessarily true for everybody <laughs> in the sector. But I'm going to go ahead and read your bio uh, to start things off, and then we'll get into some questions for you. Uh, okay. Leah Baki Vaughn, Executive Director of the CGI Fund, was previously Deputy Director at the American Committee on Africa and the Africa Fund, where she championed the release of political prisoners, including Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu, uh, as well as divest- divestment from companies doing business with South Africa's apartheid government. In South Africa, Aaliyah worked for the South African Council of Churches, to decrease violence in the East Rand on the Independent Electoral Commission to educate communities about voting in the country's historic first democratic elections for the World Council on Religion and Peace, which first called for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and for the Women's Development Foundation, 
which supported electing women to national government. Returning to the U.S. in 1996, Aaliyah worked on the Jubilee campaign to cancel African debt and demand HIV-AIDS medication for African countries. As director of social justice ministries for Riverside Church, she supervised 13 social justice ministries, including the Sharing Fund and Prison Ministry. She also created the Prison Family Support Group and Sojourners, a ministry to support and advocate for releasing people detained in U.S. facilities. She then served as director of grants and training at the Peace Development Fund. Uh, Aaliyah is the daughter, granddaughter of Irene Morgan of the Morgan v. Virginia Supreme Court decision uh, against segregation in interstate travel. Freedom Rides, the Freedom Rides supported her case. Leah is now the proud, fierce mother of two black boys uh, and, and also the, the wife of a Mr. Morgan, I, I, I assume. Yeah. Um, Mr. Vaughn. Mr. Vaughn. Mr. Vaughn, sorry. The, I had Morgan in my head from them. Um, so you've had uh, quite a career. Good job. Well, thank you. Still <laughs> in it. Yeah, still, and still you're still in it, it. <laughs> which we appreciate. Uh, and I, I imagine lots, lots, um, lots of work left to do. Yes, lot, lots and lots of work left to do. Some of that work. Work on racial justice. That's the way it is. So, yeah, and, indeed. Um, uh, and some of that work will be a good long interview with with uh, with me, so that the audience can hear um, about your experiences and stuff. Uh, so I like to start at the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Well, I was born and raised in St. Albans, Queens, and in Roosevelt, Long Island. I lived in Queens until I was seven years old. I was the first born of three girls and the second born of five granddaughters. Um, uh, in Queens, we lived in a middle-class, predominantly black neighborhood. I lived with my parents and my grandparents. I felt very, very loved by my entire family, and I was indulged. <laughs> Um, my sister Shoshana and I went to Jamaica Jewish Center for pre-K and kindergarten. Um, first grade, I went to um, a, a school out of Bayside, Queens, which was overwhelmingly white. And the bus company would take all the white children to school first, and then they would come back for us. And so we were always late to school. Yep. And... Um, we were raiding out there in the rain, in the heat, in the cold, and we'd get in, and our teachers would not be happy. And I remember my teacher, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Katz, would um, ask the class a question, and I would always raise my hand because I was an enthusiastic student until I got there. Uh, and she would say, looking at me, she would say, well, since nobody knows the answer, <laughs> let me explain and so she, there was just a clear hostility. She, she would never, she wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. I wet myself one time, I remember. And my mom was like so angry. She came up there, and by the time we finished, um, my mother had uh, enrolled me in the in the neighborhood school. And so I finished my first grade with Mrs. Apple, who was the most loving, wonderful teacher anybody could have. Um, my second grade was in that same school. And then we moved to Roosevelt, Long Island. Huge, really quick white flight. And my school, um, Harry Daniels, uh, had a, um, I had like a black teacher for the first time in my life. And I was like really excited. Miss Alita Collins, her name even sounded like mine. I was on a girl crush for sure. 
She mm-hmm. was a great teacher. She taught us algebra in third grade. We were like really rocking and rolling. And then she got married and she left to move to California. We had this other new teacher who was like, why are we wasting this time on this kind of stuff on these little black kids? This is like not a thing. And I remember, I literally remember the, this little boy, this brilliant little boy in class with me and how his whole, his entire face, his whole, his whole being was crushed in that moment. And, um, and I remember like coming home and talking to my mom about it and she moved me um, from that school in my fourth grade, I went to a Quaker school, Queens mm. Academy, and that was like a dream school. But I remember that clearly I had had this aptitude in math, but by the time I got to the friend school, I was like, I had to be in a bridge class between um, third and fourth grade math because just that experience with that teacher had so harmed me <laughs> that I had internalized the, um, basically this racism, I had internalized it. And, um, and so that experience though at Friends was so loving that, you know, be, you know, it was just a few months in that bridge math class. And then I kind of gave my confidence back because I was in a supportive educational environment. And so, um, I, I just learned a lot from that. So my my household, my mother, my father, my grandparents, they loved me fiercely. They had a really almost idyllic childhood, except for the fact that my parents uh, separated and my father had schizophrenia. Um, but by the time we were in fifth grade, my sisters and I went to a parochial school, an Episcopal school in Oceanside. Um, my parents divorced. So just just we, to interrupt, and we this, you're, sorry, you're in fifth grade, and so far you've gone to Jewish day school, Quaker school, and now you're going to Catholic parochial school? Right, 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 exactly. Okay. I've gone to Jewish day school. I've gone to a segregated white school. I've gone to a predominantly black uh, city public school, and I've gone to... Um, a black public school in Long Island, and then I've gone to a Quaker school. And we are at fifth grade. Now in fifth grade, I'm going to an Episcopal school. Okay, Episcopalians, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so my experience was extremely diverse religiously, yeah. um, and it really taught me a lot about um, really the commonality of, of religion and in terms of the, the basic core values. Like, they're all the same. Right, treat each other right, be kind, love one another, um, tell the truth, and that was like a you know a common theme in all of these schools. Um, yes, um, there is uh, quite a bit of similarity in the values of the various so-called Judeo-Christian religions. The same source material, I suppose. Um, the uh, it's fairly. Uh, a lot of people have a lot more homogeneous uh, religious upbringing than you, Pat. Um, and yeah. then, again, we are only at. You've only taken us up to fifth grade and such. So, did you just continue to change? Did you go to a different religious school each year until you graduated, or? 
What do you mean by change? Like, well, I, we've, got fifth, we've got to fifth. We've got to fifth grade. I, was the same I mean change. I just meant change. Switch schools. Did you just keep switching schools each year? No, from fifth from fifth to tenth grade, I stayed in the same school, St. Agnes uh, Episcopal School in Oceanside, where there were too many racial incidents to count. Hmm. Uh, it's primarily coming from the students, primarily with the exception of the headmaster, who who was who was very clearly racist, but was never overtly racist in that he wouldn't call you the n-word but i remember for example one time being called into the red room we used to call it the red room because i had a red carpet <laughs> it was a place where you got called like if something was wrong yeah and and um father cook said um so what how did you get you know these grades like how do you get have higher grades than michael flushman hmm. and i was like I couldn't believe he was actually asking me that. So I said, um, I studied. So anyway, it was like that kind of school, you know, where you had to like explain to the white headmaster why you were doing well as a black person. <laughs> so by the time I got through 10th grade, when I got to 11th grade, I told my mom, hey, I can't not another year go through this <laughs> This experience, I've got to get out of here. I don't, I can't promise you that I'm not going to like lose it one day with this guy. So my mother um, pulled us out of that school, my sister and I, Shoshana, and we went to a Catholic school. And we finished um, the last two years in a Catholic school. And my sister graduated. She was so good in school. She, she, and very smart. So she graduated with me. And we both, Graduated together and went to Cornell. You both went to Cornell. Yeah, she went huh. to. Um, That's a good school. One school, and I did it. I went to another school at Cornell. Yeah. I had a couple. I had a couple friends who went to Cornell when I was in college. I got to visit a couple times, um, which is how I know that Ithaca is gorgeous. Ithaca <laughs> is gorgeous. It, it, it definitely is. It's a very impressive gorge that you have there. Um, yeah, I forget. Beautiful, beautiful campus. My friend Kyle was a member of a fraternity on campus, and the, the fraternity house was right on the gorge, uh, uh, with a terrific view and everything. And I do recall uh, when we finished the keg, throwing it off of the porch into the gorge, which I'm sure yeah. I should not have done, but at the time, not. it was strongly encouraged at the time, and it was, and I will admit that it was fun. Um, so the um, uh, you mentioned a sister named Shoshana. Yes, I have a sister named Shoshana and one named Janine. So there was the three of us. I've um, met many Shoshanas. Huh? Every Shoshana I've met, and I've met quite a few, has been Jewish. Is your sister Jewish? She is not. And Aliyah is actually a Jewish name as well. So it's like the Leah with the A front. Yes. You know, Aliyah. I have met. I have met. They used to spell it double A, you know, um, L-I-Y-A-H because that is the Hebrew way to spell it. Yes, uh, Leah is definitely, there's a Leah in the Bible, I, I believe. Uh, yes. and, um, the, but I have met Aliyahs and Leahs who were not Jewish. Shoshana, yes. Shoshana, like if someone were to say, name an extremely stereotypical Jewish name, I, w I, might, act, I might name Shoshana. So how, how did she end yes. up? I mean, that's like well, a Ashkenazi name. ended up, again, this extraordinarily diverse religious experience. So my father was studying Judaism at the time that we were born. And and my mother's family had a branch of it that had been like like a, a, 
a crew of what you what people call like the black Jews. Yeah. Um, in New York, and then my grand my grandmother was raised as an Adventist, so all those names kind of work with all of that, and so that's how we got those names. My sister Janine got her name because my father just loved that name, and he really wanted it. My actually, my father fought for all three of those names. My he was mother, studying Judaica, you said. Yeah, he was studying Judaism at the time that we were born. But for fun or in I later found it. So I thought that that was the whole story of how I got that name. But then later on, I found out this incredible history, which was that my great, so my, I knew my grandmother was a missionary on my father's side, right? She had been a missionary. She came to the United States and she was preaching and then she died of cancer when he was only 12. But, but what I found out was that her family, her mother was Jewish yeah. and had been, um, working for a family in Nazi Germany when they left Germany and came to the United States and that she was not particularly happy that her daughter married a, a, a Christian mm -hmm. and that she and that she converted. So that is still, yeah, so that's really, I think that that may have been part of the reason that my father had studied Judaism at the time. Was he just but studying I, I, it for fun or was he in school or? No, no, no. He just, he just started. He taught, he taught himself Hebrew. Um, of course, people do that all the time. But he went to, yeah, <laughs> went to. Um, Very normal thing no, to do. He, he was going, no, but he was, he was going <laughs> to synagogue, and he taught himself Hebrew, and he was huh. studying. You know, really, like he was in. <laughs> this is very. I, I am. I am Jewish. Regular listeners to the show will know that. I'm not sure if I've. And David is a name that is often Jewish, but not always. Um, but very much had the history, very the, strong. When there's, um, the, because we are uh, people who live mostly in diaspora, most Jews do not live in Israel, uh, and we've ended up all over the world. So all sorts right. of things have happened. We have um, one of the committee members at the unfunded list is um, Pueblo, member of the Tewa tribe, uh, but also Jewish. Oh. Uh, and yeah. in fact, there are probably a lot of Jewish Pueblos, with the most of them not knowing that they are Jewish. Um, you may remember something called the Spanish Inquisition. If yes, you were if you were Jewish and you wanted to avoid being inquisited, right, you would say, "I'm I'm Christian now, and I want to spread Christianity all over the world. Send me to America as a conquistador, right?" And then, I see. and then some of them, when they got to America, would just just be Jewish again. And a lot of them just sort of you were like, "Listen, being Jewish gets you killed, so we're not going to talk about it anymore." And then um, they went along their lives for centuries without talking about it, and you know then. You know, a variety of things, it, um, particularly because genetic testing has become kind of popular in the last few years. Uh, you've had, you know, uh, natives and lots of other folks realizing that they are Jewish. Um, I often thought that I was, um, I never liked this term, half Jewish. My father is Methodist. Um, but uh, according to the genetic testing, I'm a lot more than half Jewish. Because <laughs> apparently dad, um, right, there's some Jewish as well, just didn't know about it. Uh, right, it's right, al I also right. do know I mean, that on my thing about imperialism and, and repression, right? It leads to people going all over the world, right? Yes, for, uh, and for and America. Reason some of them good and some of them awful. America, America was the place for a long time that was accepting. If you were cast out from your home country, America was the place to go, and then and unfortunately, I think that reputation has taken a hit since I was born. 
uh, particularly in recent, particularly in recent years, it's still the truth for a lot of people living out in the world that their dream is to come to America and live here in America. Uh, and uh, life here is uh, pretty good um, compared. <laughs> and I, I always think that it's really important for the people who are all constantly talking about how the United States is the best, America's best, that many of those people have never left the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes. They are talking about it. <laughs> well, you name any, any, of the pro- any problem we got here, it's not a, we're not the only ones who have it. No, we are not. And we didn't invent, we, we, we invented very few of these problems. We've compounded yeah, many. But we exacerbated Yeah, them. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we haven't really been, I mean, the big fundamental problems, we haven't, we're, we're not old enough of a country to be the primarily <laughs> responsible one. Um, the, um, so that for a long time, uh, American Jews, particularly white looking American Jews, uh, and they're still pursuing the strategy, uh, the assimilation strategy. Um, they present Judaism as just another religion, just like all, you know, just like Episcopalian and, and the other school, all the other various religious schools you went to. Um, yes. and that assimilation strategy made it very hard for Jews who don't look like, uh, standard Jews uh, to participate in it. Um, yeah. My, uh, I don't look like a, a standard Jew. Um, I have blonde hair and blue eyes. And mm-hmm. people, there, I've been my, in my life, people have been like, thought I was lying about being Jewish. I once got Unless sent. Unless you take the picture that everyone has, has performed all over the world that Jesus is. Yes, today I, look, today I look exactly like Jesus. And so <laughs> it is, um, which is not what Jesus actually looked like, but it not doesn't, at all. That's no one. No one anymore. Now that I have the beard, I have a Jewish-looking beard, and that and that has stopped the like you can't possibly be Jewish. When I was a kid, it happened a lot. I was also grew up in Maine, where there aren't a lot of Jews. I once got sent to the principal's office by my world history teacher uh, because I told her I was Jewish, and and she oh thought that the gosh. Jews had gone extinct, so I couldn't possibly be Jewish. Oh, yeah. This is Mrs. Williams, Shelley oh, Shelley Williams, if she's. Shelly, well, Shelly, if you're listening, <laughs> I didn't appreciate. I didn't appreciate that, and we're not extinct. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of people who are Jewish who don't get counted. Uh, just recently, the Pew Charitable Trust came out with the Jewish demographic study, and they've improved a lot of their methodology on how to count Jews. It's not. It's not an easy. You can't just go by last name or what we look like. You can't force us all to take a genetic test. We don't register anywhere. It's not a question on the census, so it's it's difficult to count us all. Yeah. And for a long time. We've been drastically undercounting Jews of color, which I think is yeah. one, of, one oh. of the biggest problems in the Jewish community globally. We need to yeah. count everybody. I agree. And the uh, Pew has done a good job. They, we, are, we went up in terms of percentage of the population in the U.S. largely because of, not because there's more of us, but because of methodology changes. They're counting more Jews of color and others. Uh, and that's all very interesting. Planets. And I often meet, because I grew up in Maine that had no Jewish community, I often meet people of color who actually had more of a Jewish upbringing than I did. <laughs> I mean, you went to a Jewish day school, and you have a sister named Shoshana. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your dad That's speaks right. Hebrew. Like, there's many things exactly. about you that are far more Jewish than me. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, that's, I think that's wonderful. I think one of the keys of us for, um, for Jews is to embrace, um, embrace that, uh, particularly in America, where we did pursue this strategy of sort of the opposite strategy, uh, assimilating into the culture, which um, to defend the folks who chose that strategy, they were trying to survive. They were trying to save their own lives. Exactly. They, were, they did not want to be killed. Absolutely. Yeah, any strategy that people that people use to for their own survival has got to be respected. Indeed. 
the I have great grand aunts who were um, dedicated to finding a Christian scientist to marry so that they could become Christian scientists. This is apparently the most like socially in Boston where they lived. This was the like higher highest echelon religion. <laughs> apparently, the Christian scientists. And, wow. and so, some of them were successful. So I have cousins who are Christian scientists because, and this was deliberate. They were like, I, being Jewish gets you killed. We're They're gonna, Jewish Christian scientists. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> I suppose so. No, I, 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 they, they made the choice to not be Jewish anymore. Okay, okay. And that, that becomes, a, that's a complicated choice, perhaps for another podcast. One of the things I would say is making that choice wouldn't have saved you from Hitler or any of the other people that tried to kill all the Jews. Uh, so and very often, very often it isn't ascribed identity on us, which is not fair, but that's where it is. And you know, not for nothing, you may know this. You can't just choose to stop being black. No, can't. Uh, so I suppose the passing is a thing that some black folks have have, have, have tried. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't have to talk about that. Those kinds of strategies. Exactly. <laughs> just let's go to let's. But Stop they, trying to kill us, and we won't have to come up. Places, but they don't exist in places where where so that survival is a question. Indeed. So that's the thing that, you know, whenever you see a strategy of people trying to pass, trying to assimilate, then you have to understand that the environment in which they are living and breathing and working is hostile. Yes. I did go to, uh, I went to boarding school for one year, Loomis Chafee, and I, oh. and I pretended to be Methodist. Entire year. <laughs> you may have seen the movie School Ties. It was not. It was not dissimilar to that, except I wasn't the quarterback. Is the main, and I'm not as handsome as Brendan Fraser. Those are the main differences between that movie and my own my own experience. Um, but I, uh, a, a, the, the, a couple times, folks would start talking about Jews in front of me, thinking that I, you know, and I had been lying about not being one, uh, and those were. That's why I don't. That's why I pretty much tell everybody I'm Jewish right away because I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to listen to one of those rants ever no. again. Uh, no. uh, anyway, uh, you. I wrote the, the way I wrote this question originally is as far as I can tell, you're a Christian. Um, I, I still. I, I think that's probably still true. You would, but you now you've <laughs> you've had basically every single religious uh, education that that one could have. Um, do you? Is there a particular faith or denomination that you ascribe to? I don't ascribe to a particular denomination. I just consider myself a Christian. Christian. Um, and, and yeah, and in in the in the, the sense that I truly believe in one God, and I truly believe in the tenets of Christianity, which are to love, to honor, to show respect, to not lie, cheat, steal, etc. I also believe those things. Yes. Uh, I yes. am. But not a not a Christian. I, I think I'd make a good one. I didn't one. even tell you. I didn't even tell you. You know, I interviewed. I interviewed to go to a school, an Adventist school called Whispering Pines, when I was a small child. Yep. And I, I, um, I passed everything, and we came to you know for an interview to see the to see the grounds. You know, right before the school was going to start, and they then all of a sudden like freaked out because you know my last name was Baki, so they were like they didn't know from Aliyah Baki what. They thought I was right. So um, when they saw my mother and I, they freaked out. And then all of a sudden, they said that I had to take another test, a psychological test. <laughs> so, mm. my, so they made me do, 
these photo like not photographs, but I had to draw pictures. I had pictures of my family and pictures of myself. And it was clear. So I drew these pictures, but you know, they were like blue sky and birds and trees and sun and grass and flowers and my family. Um, you know, my father was very tall and my mother and my and and I realized after, because he started to ask some questions of my mother, that um, he, this was right after, you know, the doll experiment with the Clarks, and, and they were looking for me to indicate in some way that I had some, um, you know, some lack of comfort with my own identity as a Black person, or that there was some pathology in my family that would be reflected in my <laughs> So I, I am familiar with the doll experiment. I'm not sure everybody (laughs) listening is. Oh, oh, yeah. Do you want me to explain? Yes, please. Oh, sure. It's just, it was a very, very um, important um, experiment that talked about the ways in which racism have impact on um, black children, particularly on how we internalize racism. And so in the picture, these children were given a black doll and a white doll who were pretty much the same except for the color and they always reached for the white doll they were asked which which doll is nice which doll is pretty which doll is a good person which doll is a bad person and everything that had a positive attribute what they would select the white doll and everything that had a negative attribute they select the black doll and it was black kids that were doing it and so mm-hmm. the study indicated that um not only were white people working under the um, assumptions of racism that white was good and black was bad, but that because all the images and all of the society's um, privileges were ascribed to white folk, that black people also internalized that as even as young as children as being in some ways inferior, bad, or not as good as whites. And yep. so um, that is what I believe this person was looking for when they asked me for that um, test. When my mother finished, she said, you know, she she also didn't allow me to go to that school because she was <laughs> like, if this, is the, if this is the intro, perhaps you might want to try someplace else. So, Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Um, the very interesting study. And um, I think a lots of times when it comes to social issues, we wonder why particular populations might not be advocating for themselves more. Like, or why are they letting this happen to themselves? There's lots of reasons why. <laughs> lots. Of you and you're, yeah. it's yeah. going to be very hard to get to the bottom of all the of all those reasons. Um, the um, so that's um, um, a lot on your background. I uh, have just one more question, and we'll go into your uh, professional career. Sure, um, sure. But there is a question I like to ask everybody. Do you remember the first time that you gave something to someone? So. As a child, I don't have a particular um, recollection of the giving because it was just kind of like a constant. Like in my family, it was what was expected of you. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always sharing. That's how we thought of it as Mm -hmm. sharing with my sisters, sharing with my my grandma used to have a daycare, so sharing with all those kids. So it's not important to me that you get the like exact date and time and amount of what you gave. But when I asked the question, what is the first, is it you remember sharing toys with Shoshana? That's oh, and Janine, of course. Janine. Yes, definitely. Remember sharing anything. My mother used to take, like, if, if she didn't have enough money for each of us to get a candy bar, she would take one candy bar and cut it in three. When we had something that she, 
when we had something that was only one, as we got older, one person got to cut, then the other people got to choose first, so that that would keep. Yes, well, we used to do that at summer um, camp. So that I break, I break, you choose. That's how we. That's how we split up Twizzlers when I was in summer camp. I, I remember my mom like <laughs> picking up a family, like she literally saw a mother with two kids, within a suitcase on a corner near a store that we used to go to, and it was snowing outside, and she just put them in her car and drove them home, and they stayed with us for a few months until the mother got on her feet. I remember my my dad giving someone literally his last five dollars that was supposed to be our bread. <laughs> my mother was upset with him. So it's like that was, it's literally been part of me. But I do remember the first time that I felt like an adult where I could actually give to someone. Oh. It, was, it was in school and there was the young man whose parents died um, soon before he got to school. And his sister was trying to support him to go to college. And his jacket, he had a jacket. And remember, I told you where I went to school, when I was in Ithaca, very cold. His jacket tore. He didn't have a coat. And I was able to buy him a coat. Huh. And I remember that feeling was really amazing. Yes. I remember that's one of my I can imagine it would have been. And you are right. It is cold there in Ithaca, particularly in the winter. It is cold there in Ithaca. And I know his, his sister, she didn't have any more money. She was already doing everything she could to get him to school. And um, yeah. and he was just going to wear that torn coat. And we were like, I, I was just like, no, that just can't be. So um, I went. I got him a coat. And you uh, have continued um, in the giving space most of your career, uh, involved service or giving or some kind. And you're currently, as I mentioned in the bio, you're the executive director of the CGI Fund, the Circle for Justice Innovations. Are you also the founder? I'm not the founder. I'm not not the founder. You've been the executive director for a good long while, right? Yeah. I I came on and it's like um, this, this... second half of its second year. Um, but the, the people who were the founders, um, Trin Dong was the program officer who started this fund, and it was prompted by um, David Rosenmiller from the... Um, he sounds Jewish. Yes, he does. Is David Rosenmiller Jewish? And he's actually not. He's not? Yeah, that's just like I said, it's hard. It's yeah. You, 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 you can never really assume. Do is he re- da- he's really? Not he's not. David his Rosenmiller father, is. Actually, his father too, who, <laughs> helped, who provided the money to help start CJI. Um, so, terrific. Yeah, but I've been, but I have been here since then. And the know. CGI Fund is one of our uh, co-reviewing partners, which um, yep. we can talk a little bit more uh, near the end. Um, okay. But long before you got this executive executive director job, someone yeah. hired you for your first job. What was your first job? Well, for a very brief period of time, my grandparents uh, had a dry cleaners. Mm. And I worked in the counter. I worked at the counter at the dry cleaners, taking in people's, you know, or, you know, clothes. And, and, you would put, and, and you'd put it on the machine, the magical, like, machine thing where it, it rolls all the hangers No, on. I couldn't. Do, I didn't have that much, you know. I wasn't even actually supposed to be working because it was, I wasn't 14 yet. Okay. <laughs> I would take right down what the clothes were and everything, and then my grandpa would come and put them on the thing, or my grandma. But I—that was my first job. Yeah, I had to get um, a—I had to get a special so farmer's my, permit to work <laughs> when I was under fourteen. And I was allowed so to—I was able to drive a car job. and everything. So I'm sorry, sir, I didn't get 
So I had to get, I wanted to work when I was 13 and I, and I had to get a special farmer's permit in order to be able to work and get paid, which also allowed me to, as long as I was doing farming business, drive a car. Absolutely. So I kept, I kept a bag of soil in the trunk at all times. So I was always on farming business. (laughs) And where, where, where was this? In Maine, in Maine? It didn't, my, I wasn't a farmer. My job, the, the work I was doing had nothing to do with farming, but it was the only way I could. <laughs> but you got one anyway. I actually, I just learned that you could, that it was a thing you could get. So I filled, and I was good, at, I've been good at filling out paperwork my whole life. And <laughs> so, and, and I think they still have it. Uh, there's actually a lot of states that, that allow, because um, there's a lot of family farms. It's important that they, you know, they have to be able to drive the tractor and things of that sort. There, there's 13, 14 year old men, I would call them men. Um, in charge of their family farms out there right now. You, you can't tell yeah. them they can't drive a car. They, they got to run the farm. Exactly. Uh, and so many exactly. states, big agricultural states still have um, specialized. And yeah, I, took, yeah. I, took, but, yeah, definitely. I took advantage I of it. I know that's the case of state New York even. Um, um, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but you, and you, I think it's cool that um, not everybody gets that, uh, that chance to work at such a young age. Um, yeah, by 14, which was the least that I could work in New York, my first job was as a camp counselor, so I had like a little group of kids, and I would take them yes. to different places and make sure they were having fun and not hurting each other, all that stuff. We manage a very large number of volunteers here at Unfunded List. We have over 700 evaluators, wow. uh, and they're all they all volunteer with us, and every so often. And I so I myself have no that's all me. I recruited the evaluators and I onboard them and train them. And steward them or cultivate them however whatever terminology you want to use uh, but i have no nonprofit management training i've never attended a course on it no one's ever it was not really a big part of any of my previous jobs um except for when i was a camp counselor <laughs> all everything i know about volunteer management i learned either in somewhat in the theater um when you do i've done professional theater only a couple of times usually most theater that's done is is um, amateur and done with volunteers and everybody has to pitch in uh, and it's a much different mindset and and that's how I'm good at volunteer management I'm actually kind of I think I probably shouldn't take a volunteer management training because I would just probably learn bad habits or whatever so yeah. you were a camp council was it where was this camp it was in Roosevelt where I grew up Roosevelt Long Island yeah so not in the yeah, wil- so not in the wilderness so much or do you have wilderness no, on Long Island? No, it's in Nassau County, so it's in you know it's it's, it's an hour, less than an hour, really, from the, to the city. But um, yeah, it's but a it's um it's a way for a camp. There's a lot of young camp counselors every summer out there, and, I, and they're getting ready to go back to camp now. It is one of the yeah. best uh, experiences I think that young people can still get. Um, very difficult to get a job if you're a teenager, uh, but uh, as camp counselor, you get a lot of responsibility. You get you put in charge of a program or put in charge of this cabin or put in charge of these kids' lives and stuff, and that's that's it's important to learn those things. Uh, I always I'm always ha- tickled when I meet a fellow former camp counselor. What was the name of your camp? Uh, it was just the Roosevelt um, Community Youth Camp. It was just Roosevelt Youth Center. It was part of the Roosevelt Youth Center where I used to um, I worked there, and then after. I used to tutor kids after school. That was my job. Hmm. Um, so I, I stayed with them for a good while. And then eventually, you were deputy director of the American Committee on Africa, which I believe is um, a Bayard Rustin influenced organization. He's one of my absolutely one of my yes. personal role models. There, there George Hauser was um, one of the um, founding ads. Um, 
Uh, it was just an amazing experience. I can say I didn't start there that way. I, I used to, I, I started as a religious action network coordinator. So religious action network. Of different yeah, religious action network or RAN. I was the RAN coordinator organizing uh, congregations of different faiths to, um, to support uh, the anti-apartheid work that was going on in South Africa. So in that time was also to help protect the religious community that was speaking out, and in particular, the South African Council of Churches, which um, you may remember when Archbishop, well, was then the Bishop Tutu, was bombed. Koto House, which is their main house, was bombed, and so they were coming under a lot of fire. And so... I'm aware um, that that happened, it's, I, but I, I, I'm not going to say I remember. No. I don't remember it happening. No. Okay. Well, anyway, it was bombed. I, I, I think I was a little child. Yes. Well, yeah, probably. It was so that's what I was doing. I was organizing that and, and the demand for the release of political prisoners. Um, among them, Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu and, and Ivan Kafrata and all those other folks, but also um, all those young people and everyone else who was rounded up and arrested during that period of time for pretty much nothing. Uh, yes, indeed. And so you were... Um... I was, Did so you I was work a in coordinator, then I was a human rights coordinator, then I was the deputy director, I think, and then I, I was the interim ED. I think I've heard of Ram. Is it that is that Rabbi Saperstein? He was part of it, but okay. no, but I think he has another one. Also, Rabbi Saperstein supported Ram, but I was working under YT Walker. Um I've heard who, of from, uh, folks may know was also um, the general secretary with Dr. King. Yes. So he was like consummate organizer, and he knew everybody, and it really helped a lot. Um, that's fair. So, but but um, so I think it's actually called RAC Saperstein's thing. It's like RAC. Yeah. It's religious action. Some something. Yeah, um, but he but he was a part of RAM. And so this was Definitely. a group. So this was a group of a bunch of different space rabbis and yeah, pastors congregations and, and congregational like leaders, and also you know um, other religious leaders who were speaking out against the And party. like you were saying, a lot of the values in these religions are, I mean, there's some difference, there's certainly differences in practice. The, whenever I go to, I get inspired to go to Christian service on occasion, or, you know, a Christian friend gets married or something like that, and I find myself in church. And the thing that always strikes me is just all the Jesus. It's just so much Jesus. Yeah, so much. <laughs> it's so true. And I, I don't go in there expecting no Jesus. Like, I understand where I am, Right. I know he's an important part of what's happening. I'm not saying get rid of the Jesus or whatever, <laughs> but I, I, it's just like, yeah, yep, yep. And yeah. this is this is why when people when I'm walking around DC and um, you know I, sometimes I'll I'll run into a group of fervent Christians who see me and think I'm actually Jesus. <laughs> it's. It's happened more than once. There's a, uh, I live in Columbia Heights where there's a very devout uh, community of Ethiopian Christians. Yes, yes. And they, I can't tell them I'm not Jesus. They won't believe it. <laughs> I must what be. What about the Ethiopian and, and Ethiopian Jews too? Yeah, I, they don't, I don't well, think they live, they're not living in my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, though it's, it's, a, it's, it's always very flattering whenever that happens to me. The last time I went to the dentist, right before he like put, he was about to knock me out. He goes, did I ever tell you you look like Jesus? I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that, 
<laughs> Do you need to know that, Doc? I'm happy, I'll be happy to talk to you about that after the... That could be upsetting when you go under. <laughs> I assume he's like, well, he's not. He's going to do this surgery well. He's not. He doesn't want to like mess up Jesus' teeth. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the other than, I mean, that's the, the main difference. Uh, it's pretty much the only difference to me between going to like um, uh, Reform or Conservative Temple service and going yeah. to Methodist service is just like 200% more Jesus. Uh, but the the non-Jesus stuff is very much the same, particularly when they talk they talk about basic concepts like love, service, things of the truth, things of this sort, uh, are fairly fairly universal. And I imagine you'll find the if you were to go to uh, a Buddhist meeting or uh, whatever it is Hindus do I, service, I guess uh, you'd find them talking about some of the some of those same concepts as well. Uh, and I imagine if there's people living on other planets practicing strange faiths there, maybe that maybe the, the, the true these con- concepts um, might actually be truly universal. I think that you'd find. Well, um, you know, with, when I worked with Rand, we also had Muslims and we did have Buddhists who were mm-hmm. joining us. So we were all um, united in our clarity around the evil of apartheid. And, yes, I don't um, think there w- there weren't any notable churches that were like, yes, this, well, this is a great. This is a great thing you're doing. <laughs> uh, I, I'm at. There's some. There definitely are um, churches out there preaching messages that I think are contrary to what you'd find in the source material. And Absolutely. there's uh, uh, generally on an individual. Um, it's not like denomination wide. It's like this church, this church, these communities get occasionally get it wrong. The like. I, I don't know. I would say that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been to every single service everywhere, <laughs> but I do. But don't you think that there are some? There's, there's been a lean, and I think that there's been a, a frightening quiet in a lot of mainline uh, Christian um, congregations, community, and some of the other um, traditions um, mm-hmm. around speaking out against racial justice. I think that we're starting to Indeed. see. Um, a serious um, re-energizing of those communities, but I think that that too much space was ceded to um, to a particular um, narrative of a p- very particular narrow sector of these religious communities, and I think that it has hurt us as a lot as a nation. I was looking at some statistics this morning on. Um so it basically, they, they broke it up. Um, uh, people who believe in the QAnon conspiracy uh, by religion, and just like with all conspiracies, it's Jews are the lowest percentage of people who believe in it. Right. Uh, and there's right. a lot. There's a lot. So there's like one, two percent of American Jews believe in QAnon. And I would really exactly. like to meet these two percent of Jews and find out what's what's going on. How how. <laughs> no, I know right. they're they're right. They're very. I, I know exactly who they are. They, they live. They're probably members of Mar-a-Lago. And they live down in Palm Beach County. That, that's right. that's that's who this two percent is. I bet you're right. I bet you're and right. And the ninety eight ninety eight percent of us reject the the, the QAnon conspiracy because it, it is overtly anti Semitic. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Some of them are like a little like try to hide it, right? And we usually figure that out. Um, yeah, but the, if you look at a lot of hiding. It was uh, you. Some there are some denominations that um, are much more likely to believe in this. Uh, you might imagine it is um, evangelical Protestants 
Uh, about 30% of them believe in QAnon. Uh, but yes, but I think that we need to be really clear that this is a this is a reflection of an infiltration of white nationalism yes. within white Christian Protestant churches, which is really frightening and um, and and alarming. I think that we really need to acknowledge that and to recognize that. I would unfortunately, have... that that is a part of our history, and um, you know this. The nationalism and the and the religious being merged in some ways, and that we have to stop it. It is very dangerous. Yes, indeed, it must. All, <laughs> and I, I just feel like I have to say that because I mean, even within, like when you look at the, the the Christian denominations, you know, you'll find there's there's not just one Baptist church, right? There's the Baptist, right. there's Progressive Baptist, there's National Baptist, there's American Baptist, and those those rifts are all always connected to racial justice issues. One was around um, slavery, another one is around the civil rights movement, mm. um, segregation. And so I just feel like it's really incumbent upon and, and, and you can see the same thing around LGBTQ issues in other churches. And so I just feel like we need to just own up to that and recognize that there is an influence of, of nationalism, racism that is um, that is really actually weakening the, the that fiber of those shared values Indeed. Um, around yes. the country, and is also contributing to almost, I would say, and I hate to say this, but by some, because I do believe that I go to a congregation where that's not the case, but by some leaders, an actual fear of speaking the truth. Oh yeah, I, I would be I pretty afraid to say the truth and. To a I, <laughs> someone yeah, running a religious service, if I disagreed with them, or as it relates to as it relates to racial justice, the truth as it relates to what's happening to the people at the bottom, like all those things which they were outspoken on advocating for, you know, have actually become areas where they're really being quiet, and I think that that quiet is is really deafening. Uh, yes, uh, it was uh, as I said, it was white evangelical Protestants who were most likely to believe in it. Uh, but yeah. white mainline mainline Protestants were, I forget the exact percentage, but it was a high percentage of them, much much higher than the American population that believes in this um, conspiracy. And you've also seen, I was reading in the Pew um, report on Jewish demography. Um, this is true for Jews and it's true for young Christians and, uh, and others as well. They're either abandoning faith altogether, right, becoming entirely secular, or mm -hmm. they're becoming more orthodox. So yeah. uh, amongst young Jews, we're more, much more likely to be, so the, my parents' generation, I forget all the numbers, but they're very, very likely to be either conservative or, or reform. Uh, my generation is, is much more likely to be orthodox or nothing at all. Wow. Because, and, it's, and, and I'll tell you, you there are, there's a lot of different reform services. Some of them are going to be a little racist. And I, I imagine that's why um, you've, you've, you're seeing a lack of interest amongst a younger generation that cares very much about these issues. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know that I'm seeing a lack of interest. I don't. I don't necessarily. Well, they're interested in it, just not. A, they don't want to engage in racial justice through their church. That is the case, but because what is the church doing that they right. would join? They go and they they, right? they, they deal with another. Well, that's why. What so role are they are they playing? So this black this Black Lives justice? Matter is a is become is a new organization. Uh, yeah, and and difficult, difficult to quantify as an organization. 
which right. is the same for churches, right? They, they, right. Um, right. <laughs> you can, there's the national and then there's local chapters. It's, they're setting it up in a very similar thing because, and, and it would have been great if the, if churches could have just done that. They were already there. They already had nice buildings. They already have access to their communities. This is what they should be doing. Right. But I think that a, a new generation of activists just didn't see it as a real possibility and, and aren't pursuing it. Uh, and yeah. some, um, the other direction. I think one of the reasons why a lot of my fellow Jews of my age are becoming Orthodox, right, is because, you know, they don't, they're, they, they, they find themselves excluded and cast out from a lot of those other conversations, and so they ran into the other opposite direction. I think that's probably what's yeah. happening to that those 2% of Jews who, 2%'s a margin of error. No Jews actually believe the QAnon conspiracy <laughs> theory. They just click the, the wrong box. <laughs> Um, but, but I mean, I think that that goes, but that goes <laughs> to the other part that we didn't talk about, right? The patriarchy and the other issues that we have found in our religious institutions, which have grossly contributed to this concept. Yes, of and the, ca- the Catholic Church had a pretty trust. big controversy right. there when and I was not a kid. Just the Catholic Church, not just the Catholic Church, almost everyone. They just had right? the big. They had the biggest controversy of Absolutely. of the of the one, and, the and I think that organized. yes, because it was the most organized, but and most most um, you know regimented, but. I just feel like this this concept of patriarchy, this this um, LGBTQ transphobia, homophobia, and all of that. I think that it has contributed to people, younger people, not seeing their religious institutions as places of safety, which is which is the other thing that they used to be. Right? This is like a place you go when you want some measure of peace, some measure of like. Um, you know, sanity, some measure of being told what's right. And then if you find that that is not a place where you're finding safety, then you are going to turn from that. And, I, and so that's why I think that um, that these institutions can reclaim their soul, right, by mm. embracing justice struggles and playing leadership roles in them. And I and so as a part, I'm, I'm a part of the um, uh, EMI, which is the... Um, and mass incarceration, it's a um, collaborative of a Jewish and um, Muslim and Christian um, uh, communities and leaders who are working to mass incarceration collectively. It's, um, it's, it's based in um, Atlanta, and it's has, it, you know, it's basically Dr. King's church, right, Ebenezer Baptist Church, but mm-hmm. it also is working with the largest congregation of Jews in Atlanta and They've been working with um, a number of Muslim uh, leaders as well, and I'm just really uh, I'm excited by that. And Ebenezer, that's the um, actually reclaiming this. They just sent they just sent somebody to the U.S. Senate, right? Um, And Raphael Warnock just went to the U.S. Senate. He's from a friend of mine who I have extraordinarily respected. I do not know Ossoff. I know most Jews. I know most Jews, but I don't know him. Yeah, I, it's only a matter of time before I meet him. He's in D.C. now, and we're both Jewish, so I'm sure we'll run into each other. Um. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's an amazing man. Really, really, he's the truth. He's not pretending well, to be anything other than what he is. Well, and that's very interesting, too, I, I, particularly to the, the comment that we were we were just talking about, right? There's this social active activism work that Ossoff and Warnock have been involved with, uh, and they have been doing it um, you know, in partnership with their faith practice. With their churches yeah, and temples. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there I just, are. I just want to make it clear that there are there are bubblings 
that we are seeing now in faith communities around these issues, which I think has been amazing. For example, I love what happened when um, when when Jews came out when the um, immigrants were getting detained and um, Latino immigrants were getting detained, and they were like, "No, no more!" In terms of deportation, like that was amazing and highly inspiring to me, and and quite a number of people. And I feel like yes. when we have more of that happening, we're going to reclaim the real, you know, you know, the United States that we've all been kind of working toward creating. So, um, yes, I agree. Uh, I generally think there should be more. I don't like to proselytize, uh, <laughs> but I also do think there should be. There shouldn't be a complete and total disconnect between social justice efforts and faith communities. I have encountered folks who are trying to work on social justice who do not have any time for faith leaders. For, don't want to talk about it. It seemed confused to me when I mentioned it. We do have a yeah. we have another co-review partner, and they uh, they asked, uh, you know, who should we be involving in our program? And I said, you know, faith leaders, religious leaders. You don't have anybody. As far as I can tell, who even goes to church in this entire room, right? And or, or temple, or, or or even like I, you probably have a few people who meditate like in the mornings before their coffee, right? Or have some kind of mindfulness practice, and that's and, and that's basically just it. They were really they're, they're um, it's an academic institution, and they're you know trying to apply rigorous, high level intellectual work to this to, to to huge problems, right? Global problems, and it would only be bolstered by having faith leaders involved. Uh, but they don't, it is confusing to them when I mention that. <laughs> uh, in particular, there's a, one of their categories that they fund in is what's called future of work or some sort of like workforce, the future of work or whatever. Right? And when, it, you know, uh, I think every single faith has attitudes about work. We Jews value work and have a f- more than one thing to say about it. Uh, but particularly Protestants, and this is, you know, a, a majority Protestant country. Uh, it works everything. That's the entire basis of that faith. I know, because I've read some of their source material. <laughs> I'm familiar with a guy named John Calvin and the stuff that he had to say. Also, the stuff that Martin Luther had to say, which I don't like what? as much. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Luther came, Martin Luther wrote a he wrote a, an essay about how Jews are rats. I think it's called Jews are Rats, I think. Uh, and it's, a, it's one of the most anti-Semitic documents of all time. And Calvin refused, yeah. refused to engage in it. Um, the and they were the they were the ones protesting. That's why it's called Protestants. <laughs> uh, and, they, and they and they had a lot. They were talking about work and what work was like and how work is a virtue. And the people who founded America were Protestants who believed the same thing. Uh, and that is how we get a lot of mainstream American values come directly from that. Right? The American dream is about working hard uh, and 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 reaping the awards from that. Um, but, uh, so you certainly you fund at the Circle. Um, people who are working on racial justice issues, social justice issues, uh, incarceration justice, which is one of the more intractable issues since I've started um, working in the yeah. in the field. Um, I imagine some of them have faith as part of the work, but that some don't. Am I imagining correctly? Yeah, actually, the vast majority of them are not people who are particularly associated with and roles in any faith communities, but they are people of very different faiths. So you can have, you know, we have, you know, we have Jews, we have Christians, we have some, we don't have a lot of Muslims, we're working on that. Um, we have people who are um, following traditional African religion, traditional indigenous 
um, faith traditions, things like that. So we, there's a lot of diversity there. But it's, this is their personal practice. Is it? Is it their personal practice involved in their work? That through right, exactly. And 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 they're not so they're not operating in that through their work. But we do in we do invite the sacred in our meetings in the beginning, and that is because we feel strongly that any work you do to affirm the humanity of another person is sacred work, and mm -hmm. that it's important for us to recognize that and include that in our understanding that we're talking about whole human beings. And that a lot of what we in the United States think about when we talk about organizing is only secular, right? And so that is how we came to understand the significance of the healing work that we support, because we were trying to support formerly incarcerated leaders, people who've been impacted by the injustice of the system. And what we found was that we had to embrace healing work because people have been so so harmed, so broken, so hurt that they need healing work in order to to take on any real leadership role because mm -hmm. hurt people hurt people, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> if you don't address that hurt and that harm, then you're going to be passing it on. And more than that, we've learned in generational um, in, in there's generational trauma, right? And you've I don't know if you've learned more about the telomeres and how they studied um, um, family members who are descendants of people who had been. Oh yes, I have I have PTSD from right? I have PTSD considerable PTSD from and not just in the Holocaust, but you know the, the exactly. Holocaust is just one of many things that happened to us. Right, and so and so that that has impacted the length of telomeres. That has impacted the like quality. That has impacted. Yeah, I was even I was even diagnosed with this by a professional medical professional. Wow. Well, uh, I actually had a really so hard time, but I had a hard time believing it at first because it's not how DNA was first explained to me. Um, right. But it is, if you, the, the sciences of it is, is real. It's not just Jews that this happens to. That, that, no, no, no. I was just saying that this was, an, this was one of the first studies that they did. Mm, yes. And they, they've, they've since studied, you know, quite a number of people, a lot of kids that have been traumatized, even from birth. Things that had happened like soon after their birth in their infancy, things that happened later. And the point is, the point is not to depress us all, but to say there's actually things that we can do in our daily lives that can that can actually change the length of our telomeres, that can actually change our outcomes and our future and our children's future. We are over an hour into the interview, and I have a couple more big questions I want to make sure I get to. Uh, okay, and uh, I have learned from my analytics that after 90 minutes, no one's listening. <laughs> that is the limit. They will listen probably for the full 90 minutes, but they will move on to something else after that. Okay. Uh, and this is very fascinating. I'm sure a lot of them are, uh, are still with us. Hello, if you are. Um, um, here with Aaliyah, with Aaliyah Vaughn. Um, so this as a practical matter on the funding. Um, yeah. right, so the religious funders are going to be all the, so if you're a religious funder, you're one religion, probably. There's some going to be a few exceptions to that, but like you're a family foundation where everyone's Christian and you give according to Christian values. And um, I'm sorry, I'm, I didn't come through properly there. I'm going to say that again. Uh, so if you're a religious funder, you probably all of the board members share the same religion, right? If it's a Christian funder giving off of Christian values. And just like I said, when I go to Christian church, it's like an awful lot of Jesus. If you go on to instrumental, they have like a little box that you can cl click to include religious funders. 
and uh, you know if you if you click that box all all instantly you've got twice as many grant matches right you're like oh wow <laughs> and you go in and you look and it's like and it's Jesus 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 <laughs> so much Jesus in these RFPs right and very clearly like I'm not they want people who are from that specific faith so I noticed that when you talk about some of the spiritual things you're doing you talk about healing practice and, and other sort of nebulous sounding things that could apply to all faiths right. The, and that is a, a, a difficulty in our sector is that the funders fund on like Jewish funders want to fund Jewish organizations. I'm Jewish. I think the work that we're doing here on funded list is quite Jewish. I am inspired by Jewish values and I live them through the work. I'm never going to get funding from an organization that only funds Jewish organizations. Right. And I'm also not, I think the work that we're doing is you know, lines up with lots of religious values, but I would never get funding from a specifically religious funder. Never. Even if I were to convert to that or whatever, we're not a we're not set up as a Jewish nonprofit or a Christian nonprofit and that sort of thing. I, and that's a difficulty, and I think that's why a lot of them are setting up there as, as secular. Because if you're and then if you're if you are a Christian nonprofit or a Jewish one, right, it's gonna be difficult for you to get funds from secular funders. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, would you you would agree that that's why that's why we see what we see with the grantees? I think that is part of why we see what we see. I also think that usually for those who are applying to CJI, they're the outliers who are the ones who are trying to infuse a lot of justice work in their congregational work or in their mm. uh, denominational work or in their religious institutions uh, and faith traditions. They're trying to reinsert that. And so um, they may not get money from their institutions for doing that they may be doing it. I think what we have found is we don't, we try not to make too many assumptions and we try to dig a little deeper to get a real clear understanding of what's really going on there. So we've had, but, but in general, I would say, yes, it's very true that is a major leaning towards secular uh, organizations to fund and support. Uh, well, thank you very much. I, um, uh, like I said, I, I do mention religion more than the average nonprofit professional. Yeah, yeah. Talks a lot more about religion than I had anticipated. I find, uh, well, whenever I have a guest who has some background in it and can <laughs> provide some perspective on that, then I try to lean into those topics. Uh, and, and and quite frankly, I could talk about religion and the various faiths with you for uh, a good long while. Uh, but um, I've got some other things that I talk about as well. Uh, your work in South Africa, particularly, uh, you pushed for, and eventually they did have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What is, what's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission? So what happened in South Africa was done in such a way that there were whole communities that had been lied to for so long that they didn't really fully embrace the truth of what had happened in their name, right? And so it was really, really critical to those who had suffered that the people who had, um, not even just the people who perpetrated you know, um, um, violence against them, but the people who hadn't really owned the fact that they were electing people who were pursuing policies that allowed it and that pursued it, they felt it was really critical for them to create a whole, to create a new country that was going to be under a different understanding of humanity that they had to tell the truth of what happened and that there had to be some level of reconciliation. I think that you can't have truth and reconciliation without some type of reparation, right? 
I think that you have to, you can't just tell the truth of what happened and then expect people to reconcile when you don't try to repair the breach that you created, right? So that's where I'm coming from. I think that's one of the lessons that we learned because we still have, we have an amazing changes that have happened in South Africa, but we still have really, really egregious um, poverty and, and um, disparities that have persisted. And mm. a lot of that is, is because of roles the U.S. and others played in pushing for, a, you know, a protection of capitalism and capital. Um, but I do believe that we've got to get to a place where there is some reparation. And I, and I think that that's also the case here in the United States. Um, so yes. To reconcile, you must tell the truth and you must repair. You have to do something. It's like what uh, Archbishop Tucci used to tell a story and say, you know, if you come and steal my bike, you knock me on the head and steal my bike, and then you ride away and you ride off with it, it's fine for you to come back and say, I'm sorry I stole your bike, but give me the bike back. <laughs> you can't then continue to ride around on my bike and then say that it's everything is okay. So, and I can't reconcile with that. So that's one piece. And then the other thing is that I think that sometimes, almost what Father Lapsley um, was one of my... Um, I would say he was a mentor to me. And one of the things he used to say was that sometimes people are, are being punished with the expectation of forgiveness. And so, in other words, they are being told that they have to forgive because that's what their tools, what their religious religion teaches them. Yes. But they don't feel, there's no expectation that that is something that does as a process. That is something that is really more about the individual who's been harmed than it is about the person who did the harm. And there's a lot more work that has to be that has to go on before we have an expectation of that. Yeah, I will say that there's a lot of I think a lot of Americans who believe that forgiveness just forgiveness on its own is a is a very virtuous thing, right? Uh, if someone has wronged you, forgiving them is makes you very righteous, right? But if they wronged you and they didn't learn their lesson and they haven't faced accountability for it, and you forgive them, they're going to go out and they're going to wrong somebody else. That's why you have to have the reconciliation and the repair. I think I would agree. So you, uh, I would compare the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission to a couple, a couple things. Uh, one is uh, one that actually happened. Uh, we had trials at Nuremberg, and they set up a claims conference and a couple other organizations. The German government was was working on it. Uh, I am owed a fortune by the German government. I am never going to. I don't think I'm going to see it. Allegedly, I might. Someday see it. Um, but uh, there's a lot of things that they did to, <laughs> to my people, including the direct theft of property, which is very, which is, uh, it, there's records of it, and you can, you can prove all of that. But they did a lot of other things that are harder. Uh, they, they monetized Jews, for instance. We, were, we had a, a mandate. We had to have health insurance. Uh, but there was also a mandate that hospitals weren't allowed to give us care. So we were <laughs> just, paying, just paying the government. for, And this was all before pre-Crystal Knight stuff. Right, right, um, right. There is a very large fund. The claims conference has the money. They're working on. They're. They're. I'm talking about today. <laughs> the Holocaust was a long time ago. Uh, they're still working on dispersing this stuff. Uh, I, at one point, or somebody in my family said, like, we don't. You don't need to make us a priority. Uh, Jews who are suffering, living in poverty, need to be, be a priority. There are Holocaust survivors living in the U.S. underneath the poverty line. Thousands, Absolutely. thousands, and thousands and thousands of them. Right, yeah. and there's this huge fund, right? And we're still. There was just a trial for a prison guard 
Auschwitz prison guard. It was just like a couple weeks ago. I so, know. so, and this is so Nuremberg had um, rep- the reparation you're talking about. It also had. I don't think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission found anyone guilty or punished anyone. I'm no, not, that, I'm not there sure. Were definitely, people who what happened is people actually had to confess what they had done. They had to tell what they. Had did done. they then go to jail? They did not go to jail. That yeah. was so they had a whole thing. But one thing that they did that we have to learn from is that they the South African government created support for those families. They created healing and support for those families so that they could actually process what had gone on, what they were hearing had happened to their loved one. And then people who did not go to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and say what they did could be prosecuted. Interesting. Uh, so, so it's still very controversial. But and I would say I there's that, in neither approach uh, perfect, right? No, you can't be perfect because you can't give people back what you took from them. You can't you you can't ever give them back everything you took from them. Indeed, with that kind of atrocity, and 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 the same I think is the, is the case you in could. slavery, and the same I think is the case in uh, our history with Native Americans. Every single yes. treaty we ever signed was broken. Every single one. Yes, and allegedly. Some German accountants will someday figure out exactly how much my family is owed, and exactly. it won't. It won't. Allegedly. It doesn't. It won't make a difference. It doesn't. You don't. Un, you didn't undo the Holocaust. Um, exactly. There's no in, in, in raising the amount wouldn't wouldn't do it either. Uh, mm-hmm. However, you should disperse those. <laughs> you, exactly. you should still disperse the money. Uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to these things. Uh, we right. have. Um, there's a couple topics that we've received proposals on from multiple organizations. Um, and they're usually like pretty pie in the sky stuff. Right? We, we, we'd like to be able, we'd like to do this and we want, um, want funding for it. The, uh, the, the grants that we read that are like most likely to get funding are like general operations grants for an ongoing nonprofit with a proven track record. You go out there and you yeah. want to do something that's never been done before, like a huge nationwide Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? That's going to be very difficult funding to get. But we have read, we've, we've received multiple proposals here from multiple groups. As I understand, you wrote one. I don't think we've, you haven't sent it to us um, for review. Uh, I encourage you to. We'll do a good, we'll do a good job. And we've read several before. Uh, these are, yeah. I mean, the ones I've read seem to me, I would like to see them funded, which is, you know, what we're, what we're doing here. I don't think they're going to be at the um, at the moment. This isn't something that funders would even know how to do. I think in our minds, right? We, they would <laughs> they 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 are more capable than they are. Uh, but like they, even if you went to Ford and you were like, we want to create a right, you've got all kinds of money. We want to create. They wouldn't know what they wouldn't know how to get something like that started. Uh, it pro- would probably need to be a law that got passed. I think you'd need to look to the. I I I don't even really know how you would do something like this. In the U.S., <laughs> well, but can you? Uh, since you wrote a proposal on it, and it's something that uh, our we definitely have unfunded folks that would like to see it happen. What do, What do you think about the, the possibility of a uh, truth, reconciliation, and reparations commission here in the well, U.S.? Well, we did not write a proposal for truth and reconciliation because, uh, as you said, I think that is way too big for us. What we wrote a proposal for is a particular element of reparations that has to do with going to a root cause of the connection between slavery and the criminal legal system that we have now. Yes. So one of those things is the 13th Amendment exclusion for labor 
being required of people without compensation, which is the case in U.S. prisons, right? Yep. So it, there's literally an exclusion which says nobody can be forced to work without compensation except people who have been convicted of a felony, right? Yeah, they got in Maine at the. There was a big thing I remember when I was a kid at the governor's mansion. They had prisoners working for free doing the gardening and the lawn work and stuff. Right. So what we're saying is that should we really have something in our constitution, both our state constitutions and our federal constitution that allow for labor without compensation, that we allow for prison labor, that basically becomes slave labor. And so since the vast majority of people are not familiar with that uh, provision that is still in 30 some uh, around the country as well as in our federal in our US Constitution what we are trying to do is raise awareness and or and, and support organizations that are challenging that in the state constitutions so that there would be an end to labor without compensation which would mean that they would have to provide at the very least minimum wages to people who why is that incredibly important because a it means that people who are in prison and work are going to get some money that means they'll have something on their books so they're not crazy to do everything to get something basic that they don't get provided by prison that means that they'll be able to send money to their families to help them, uh, taking care of their children that means that those communities that are robbed of people who are contributing to their economy are now going to have an infusion of cash as well as those. That means that there are probably going to be fewer children in foster care because parents or other family members who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford taking care of them are now going to be able to receive some money from their family. So I, I understand <laughs> it's a, the, the recidivism um, is very high here and the, the, uh, poverty is a main cause of crime. Uh, and uh, and just in general, fundamentally, you shouldn't make someone work for nothing. The, um, I'm opposed to slavery, like like many other like many other people. Even people who don't have a strong religious background are opposed to exactly. slavery. Exactly. Um, or should it, be. And you're and you're right. We're doing what we're doing is uh, just sort of a wordsmith version of slavery. Um, a lot of these, uh, and it's mostly men. Uh, a lot of these men, and women as well, but a lot of these men who are being forced to work for nothing. Uh, well, the the crime they committed maybe wasn't that much of a crime. Uh, we do we have a lot of stuff on the books that makes it pretty pretty easy to lock to lock people up. Exactly. Um, and so to stay and to stay locked up it. once you're locked up. Yeah. Which uh, so, so we know that there's some organizing <laughs> that's going on on some states around the country now. We want to support that. We want to create a cohort of them that they would be able to work together to take on the state constitutions, that yep. process in and of itself will increase the understanding people have about the, this legacy of slavery that is still in our constitution. And then the case for reparations as opposed in terms of returning this money to people who have worked for all these years and have gotten nothing. So that lays the ground for also a, um, a case that can be opened to have people get the money returned to them, especially corporations. Let's not forget that a large number of corporations, as in many other times in in uh, history of humanity, have benefited from this slave labor, yep. and that they should be forced to pay those people who worked for them for nothing. 
Yep. Um, and so that's that's the case. I mean, it also includes collateral consequences of um, incarceration, such as, for example, you can't vote in certain states, right. or you know, there are elements of that, like voting, or uh, you can't, for example, get a barber's license. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Or there's a major fee that you can't get a barber's license. Yeah, in certain states, you can't have professional licenses if you have a felony conviction. So people don't understand how this contributes to any professional license. Right. <laughs> well, no, it depends on the, on the sure, state sure. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around the like. I can see what those yeah. people were thinking, but, but it's a just barber's license. Like, I mean, come on. Or just so, well, why on earth? Why would someone's out of prison, right? Why on earth would the government be trying to make their life harder? They've left prison. <laughs> like, why are that you? That is the entire system. That's it's almost a, it's like a, system. it's the only purpose I, is theirs. Like, let's forget them. They should be locked back up. We don't care that yeah. you served your time. We, we'd rather you just go back there. Um, yeah, so this is one of the ways that you can control a population of labor, right? Yeah. You can control a population voting, and you can control a population how many of them there are, right? If you have... If you are locking up that large a percentage of black men and or women, then you are going to have less people that are black. <laughs> and so we have a situation in which in the United States, black people are still 13% of the population. Yep. So um, there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes. So what your, that. so your proposal and the, the what uh -huh. you'd like to do is a, is but one piece of the truth and reconciliation and reparations work that I would say that exactly. the country probably needs to do. And even yeah. though it's just one piece, it is, um, you must, you must know this going to be difficult to accomplish. <laughs> right. But so not impossible. Not There's impossible. So no, anything worth, anything worth doing, anything worth doing is, is going to be difficult so to do. Many things, so many things in my life I've been told were, not just difficult, but were impossible. They yeah, I don't want to tell you impossible. Never be released alive. They told me that CJI was abolition was a crazy concept, and CJI was never going to last. They told me lots and lots of things in my life that yes. I just did not believe because I knew that really, over time, justice is going to win out. Well, they've told me some of those things as well. <laughs> the <laughs> I, when, I, when I told them I was going to review rejected grant proposals, you can imagine what some of them had to say about that. The, I, I, I don't even like <laughs> In general, a lot of them, a lot of people in philanthropy in particular, like understood what I was doing. But the, in the beginning, several were like, what is this? I hate this. And like started making phone calls behind my back. And I think they thought I was going to try to embarrass the foundations. Um, but I think they do a fine job of embarrassing themselves. The, um, yeah. But uh, so in order for you to be successful, you're going to need like several local grassroots groups to have state level victories, Right to build up a, like a number of case studies, right? And then maybe eventually have some, some pressure federally. Ultimately, the, like the, the last thing that would happen, I think, is a Supreme Court case. Yeah, probably would be a Supreme Court case. But let me just say that this work is already happening. Yeah. It's it just is. a question of whether we're going to support it and whether we're going to help bring convene people in one way or another, it could be virtually or whatever, so that they can share what's going on in their other places. There's, there's a, I think, at least three states right now where this is about to be, um, be, uh, you know, it's going to come up for, for um, vote mm -hmm. in the next. Um, yeah, the, it's going to, uh, an issue I worked on, it's somewhat similar, 
is I, I did, um, I worked at a place called the National Youth Rights Association for a while. And one of our um, core issues was that we were opposed to corporal punishment in school, uh, which yeah. a lot of Americans are surprised to find out that that's something that happens in American public schools. And even though it's been a full 10, yeah. it's been a full 10 years since I worked on this issue, I don't, I'm not going to remember all the like stats and everything. But I believe it's 19 states that allow corporal punishment in public school. Uh, I did. I was involved in getting it banned in New Mexico, uh, and uh, functionally, it's still technically legal in Colorado, but it, they haven't hit anybody in decades now. Uh, we have um, we've killed kids this way. There's a there was a Department of Education study a little while ago. We've killed dozens of kids through corporal punishment in school. You'd think the first time we killed a kid, we, we would stop hitting them, but. <laughs> But no, the, uh, throughout the South, a lot of administrators are uh, convinced that it's, an, it's a, um, essential for maintaining order and discipline. I know. Uh, I know. And if you look into who's getting hit, it is almost entirely black boys. Absolutely. Or occasionally black girls who, like, don't dress right. Yeah. But, but, but usually um, black boys. Which, which coincides with the suspension rates, right? But when they become much more likely, and they just, it, it, it starts them down into the, it's a good way to get into the prison, the school to prison pipeline. Um, oftentimes, yeah. they get hit, and they don't go back, because they got hit there. I don't want to go back. I get it. That guy's hitting me. He has a, and he has a big paddle that he uses. Uh, and no one's going to stop him. Um, if he hits me to death, he has immunity. Yeah. An actual true thing. The, yeah. uh, uh, we, I, um, the main frustration working on that is we would find potential partners, uh, potential donors, lawmakers that were interested in it. Uh, Senator Tom Harkin did not know. He was the chairman of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Commission in the Senate. And I'm the one who told him corporal punishment was still legal in America. Um, it's, it's really under the – it does not happen in, even in Texas where we hit, they hit more kids in Texas than the rest of the world does legal, legally. They're hitting, in the Philippines, they're hitting kids, but it's actually illegal there. Um, 40,000 kids a year in, in Texas legally paddled. And it's not in the Austin school district or the Dallas school district or the big, or the big cities that the senators might visit and talk to those superintendents right, on their site visits. It's, it's way out of town where, if, where they're just not going to talk about it. Exactly. They have to report it in order to get some of their federal funds, which is how we know about it. <laughs> it's obviously drastically underreported, and they're still saying they hit 40,000 kids. Um, yeah. And I, I, we would encounter, we would meet a lot of people who would think, and Senator Harkin thought this too in the beginning, this is low-hanging fruit, we got to stop this, right? And they get, they start working on the issue and they get burnt out very easy, very quickly when they see how it's not going to be fixed. They're going to keep hitting those Well, kids. it can be fixed because all they have to do is say federal dollars are depending on it. Yeah, they, and that bill has been introduced every single session of Congress since I was born, and it's never gotten out of the House. So it's going to be harder than... <laughs> right, and it seems like this is a bill that says if you hit children, you don't get money for educating children. It's it seems like something that should, we shouldn't. Even, no one should be hitting children in the first place. We shouldn't have had to write this, but since we did, here it is. Right, it's Carolyn McCarthy introduces it pretty much every year. Um, it's not gonna. It's I not. Her. It's not gonna get through now this year. I mean, I don't like saying it's. I don't like saying things are impossible because um, I've seen impossible things happen. But a lot of the work that gets done in the justice space is extremely difficult to accomplish. Um, yeah, you and absolutely. I know you and I know this. Uh, people who are making their first foray into philanthropy or social justice work or activism uh, might 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 not might think it's going to be easier. 
might think that this issue looks like low-hanging fruit, and we're going to have a lot of victories really early, right? Or they, they're going to go to one march, <laughs> right? I've been to some marches, and they're usually a nice time, but you don't actually get anything done at them. Like, no laws get passed, hardly anybody. Like, and they're good for a lot of reasons, fundraising, lots of things, getting the, the word out. Like, but the, in terms of actual tangible change, there needs lots of other stuff has to happen. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it does help make cre- create the pressure for the law to be considered in ways that it wouldn't have been sometimes, depending on the issue and the timing. Well, I think, and we had <laughs> we had actually some funding for it, um, uh, but one of the things we didn't really anticipate is that there would be well-funded lobbyists opposed to us. Mm-hmm. Right? There are well-heeled folks out there that want those schools to keep hitting kids, and they they yes. and I know why they want to. <laughs> I know why they want that. Some of these folks are coming from those companies that are getting free prison labor, and they know that corporal punishment yes. leads to yes. more prisoners, and they're and they're actively trying to keep corporal punishment on the books. That's what you're up against, even when you go up against low hanging fruit like stop hitting children in school. Yeah, right. So, and I, you're going to find people who, when you say we should pay prisoners, they're going to say, well, they're prisoners; they shouldn't have committed a crime. They, they exactly. Wanted. So that's why we have to do the education. That's the whole piece. I mean, same thing. Listen, I, I was working on anti-apartheid. You, you think that everybody would get that in the beginning. The biggest no, I'm sure they didn't. That allows, <laughs> the biggest thing that allows injustice to continue is people don't know the details. They don't know. Like, you ask the average American, do they know that the 13th Amendment allows for slavery in prison, like labor? With the, they don't. Probably not. And uh, so that's the thing. Like, you, you, you start doing some surveys and say, do you believe that um prison labor or slave labor should exist in the united states people would say no that's the same thing they said about prison about private prisons but they exist because people who are in control are continuing to work on that and people who are like you and me and we we're the, the crazy lone folks in the wilderness and the folks that are teaching our kids are not telling them what is happening this is the real history yep. so we have work to do. I do believe that it is possible, and I believe that this is the this is the time to really push it forward. Even though I say this, understanding that we don't even have a law that makes lynching illegal. Yep. Um, the uh, uh, it is uh, we're in a place right now with our governance that any it's just very difficult to pass any kind of law, even common sense ones. Um, yeah. We, the checks and balances are kind of working against us at the moment. Uh, and if you're the kind of person that doesn't want anything to pass, it's very easy for you to sit in the minority and watch things not pass. Um, right. And we will see, right, if they were to, if that um, corporal punishment bill were to get through the House, it'll probably get voted on at some point, I imagine. And, that, and this House would pass it, and then it would get filibustered in the Senate. Very possible. Very likely, <laughs> but not, but you never know. Well, they're gonna, what I think is that if you had you a do. children's campaign, if you, if you had a children's campaign that would bring attention to it, that would put uh, it in a different light. Yeah, we tried. We had a uh, not to get into it too much, but it was very difficult to get the kid. The kids are afraid of getting hit, so we were, we tried to find we t- kids who had been victims of corporal punishment. You, you really can't get them to talk about it publicly until they're not in that school anymore, because they think if they yeah. they're going to get hit. And they're right. They're probably right. If they talk to me and I put them in a newspaper article or I have them talk to Senator Harkin, they're going to go back to school and they're going to 
<laughs> beat the shit yeah. out of them. Like I don't really, and like that's, and they were not well, hearing from okay, them though. because you can still have the kids from the that used to be beaten at the other school. Yeah, and talk about, and then a lot of them are like, you know, I got out of it and I'm fine and I survived it. And they have and It's it, it was difficult to. That seemed like it, it would have been very easy for me to, especially we had this meeting set up with the U.S. Senator. I, I felt like it would have been really easy to get them to get kids to come in and talk about how poorly that went for them, and it wasn't easy. Um, they 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 so wanted. Um, the um and and you know uh, I might have been I, I was also on working on limited funding right? I didn't have I couldn't travel all over the country talking to talking to kids um off, I got <laughs> I got accused I had a sheriff call me um at one point um and they were going to charge me with contributing to the delinquency of a minor um yeah the the, the, the this is a country that um <laughs> has some has a lot of people opposed to progress of any kind. And they'll go to they'll they'll do extreme stuff to prevent it, and we don't necessarily do the same kind of extreme lengths to to push it. Right? You've got all kinds of Americans. You're right, who are like, I don't think we should have slavery. I don't think we should have corporal punishment. I don't think we should have this. We should have that. Right? And they'll be upset about it, and they'll tweet or share, maybe even donate to an organization. Uh, but everything they would need to do to stop it, they're not necessarily going to do all of that. Um, no, but 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 if you start in those states where you do have a number of people, you have a critical mass of people who will work against it, and it passes in this state and another state, and it starts to pass in another state. That's what we did with Ban the Box. That's what we did with Ending Shackling Against Women. That's what we did with School to Prison Pipeline, um, high, high numbers of suspensions. That was That's what we did with um, funding organizations that were taking folks who had been involved in street organizations, what we all otherwise call gangs, mm -hmm. and reintegrating them into community advocacy work. Like all of that was stuff that people said couldn't happen, wouldn't happen. And yet, when you start in the communities where you do have the support and make it happen, and then you take those folks and you talk to them into talking to the people in the next state over or the next state over you can get momentum and get these things done. And that is exactly what we're going to do. Yes. I believe that you are. The, um, I like how you, oh. <laughs> I like how you said that. Uh, we have a working definition of philanthropy here at the unfunded list. Uh, and without boring you um, with all the details on it, it's basically is that it's, uh, it is how you accomplish the impossible. Right. So the, when I, when I, if you talk, so like, um, Without philanthropy, I would say that ending corporal punishment in this country is impossible. Capitalism is all you have left if you get rid of philanthropy, and capitalism wants to keep it. Philanthropy exactly. is the distribution of excess wealth. We, someone or some fund has wealth that's beyond, that has now freed itself from the wheel of capitalism and can be used to do the impossible, to change, to change yes. perspectives, to do the kind of stuff that you're talking about, to change things. That, and you know what? Capitalism can do a lot of good positive social change as well. The, yes, there's a lot fewer people living in... Love and action. Yeah, well, you can... Stuff that, would, that, that the normal way of things would never allow for can be done once we engage in philanthropy. And that's something that um, some notable Americans, Carnegie, Getty, Rockefeller, knew. And, and understood. If you read Carnegie's like essays on philanthropy in the beginning, he talked about excess wealth all the time, about how he couldn't possibly spend the money that he had, and and, and wrestling. And he was one of the first people in the history of humanity to have that issue. It's not. A, I won't call it a problem, <laughs> right? Uh, there were Mansa Musa, who was a very wealthy man, 
who owned Timbuktu. But he was Timbuktu. He had to pay for everything. <laughs> the standing army, everything. He did not have excess money. Right? And the same with all the, those Roman generals before him who were wealthy and all of the wealthy people throughout history, right? Kings and queens had to build castles and walls and maintain armies, and the peasants were reliant on them for everything. They had all the money, extreme levels of wealth inequality. Um, in America, we got to the point where the, um, a lot of basics were provided, especially for the middle class and up. You didn't have to worry about a whole lot, right? And they could eventually have excess money, not just the super wealthy, but the you know members of the upper middle class and middle class have more money than they need. It became kind of a common thing. They started donating to causes. We started curing diseases, right? Building community centers, building the world's greatest hospitals, building the world's greatest academies, right? All kinds of stuff that that the Industrial Revolution alone would not have accomplished, right? We just have a bunch of steel. <laughs> we have a big, huge oil drums, steel-made oil drums, right? Um, right, and lots of um, statues of men. <laughs> and metal lunchboxes. <laughs> yes. Right and the and the best iron lung money can buy, right? The um, but you know we with um, uh, right and so uh, one of the things that's very interesting to me about giving circles, we are co-reviewing with giving circles for the first time this spring, uh, is this is an opportunity for folks who don't necessarily have Carnegie levels of wealth, right, uh, to engage in philanthropy. You're not yes. you're nodding vigorously, which doesn't yes. doesn't come through on a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, yes, that's true, very true. So yeah, so giving circles, the, the beauty of this was that we had we had actually a donor that came to us, like I said, David Rosemuller, who was who had been giving in an activist advised model where they just gave money to activists and said, you know more about this issue, you just distribute the money. You call that but an then, activist advised model. That's interesting. I've never heard yeah, that phrasing, but I like that. It was an activist advised model. The funding exchange used to have it, and CJI started there. But CJI was a pilot of an, a different concept, which was that the donors and the activists would sit at the table together and discuss where the money went because he wanted to hear directly from the organizers about what they were thinking and to learn more about the issues. And he felt that the activists could also um, learn more about kind of the kind of things that donors want to know and, and are interested in. And, and so we decided to try it, and it has been an amazing experience. Um, a lot of our donors felt like what we call, sometimes we call them activists, donor activists. <laughs> they felt like um, this was a place that they could bring their whole selves. There's lots of donors that are um, operating incognito, right? They're volunteering or they're doing activist work, but they're not really disclosing that they're, act that they're donors. And um, they felt like this in this place they could be donors and they could also identify with people who were doing this work as well. So, so, Important to them, and then for the activists, it was what was amazing about it was that they felt like I am now because once the money is at the table, everybody is sharing the decision about where it goes. So I'm actually determining where resources are getting distributed. Mm. This is an amazing experience for me. This is an empowering experience for me. My my experience in my community doing this work is actually an asset that's being recognized around this table. So. That has made for some amazing relationships. You know, we all we know each other's kids and births and deaths and uh, families and support each other and have actual real relationship outside of when we meet. We meet twice a year. Once is um, a, what we call a political education meeting for each circle, where we're learning more about what's happening in the field in that particular area that we're funding. 
and that we hear directly from activists. And then we, we design the RFP together. We agree on what we want to fund that addresses that, taking into account this new information that we just learned. And then we collectively decide on who gets the grants and we collectively decide on who, how much money they get. It's not always easy, but it is an amazing transformational process because this is not something that otherwise people do together. We talk about money, right? I've literally had a millionaire at the same table with a person who did not know if they were going to be able to pay their rent, mm -hmm. collectively deciding on where money was going to go. It is something amazing. Uh, yes, it does. Um, it does sound interesting, and uh, we have a partnership. We are you are co-review partners with us. We have two giving circles. Yeah. Another one based down in D.C., which is um, yes. it's for like young professionals. I think they're giving one percent of their paycheck or something. Oh, and, and it's to it's to DMV based uh, organizations. I live here in D.C., so I um, uh, care about it quite a bit. We also have a lot of evaluators who live here, and so I think we'll be. Um, Helpful with those. Um, uh, we are uh, so co review is where my committee independently reviews um, proposals that were submitted to you. We give them the opportunity to opt in uh, if they want extra outside help. Uh, and what is actually what we found is that in the beginning, it's usually it's a very small number that opt in. So we are co reviewing two uh, of your grantees, and we are going to we're going to do a really good job. I've actually been. I'm sure you will. The feedback deadline was last week. I've read and I'm finalizing the reports, and we'll, we will send them out. Um, I forget the names of your grantees that we're reviewing, uh, but they're working on incarceration issues, yeah. and uh, we will we'll send those reports out. And then we we review we'll be reviewing again in the fall and then next spring, and, and I imagine that each round we'll have a slightly larger batch. Uh, yeah. So um, why uh, you already got a lot of perspective around the giving circle table, and I don't mean right. to talk myself out of a fun partnership, but why co why co review with unfunded list? Because. The, the bottom line is that this is what I believe, that it's really important for people to understand. The um, philanthropic <laughs> sector is not something that people of, of limited means have any real experience with connection to, history to, relationship with, right? There, we yep. should not expect that because somebody may be really great at organizing people or may be great at motivating people or may be great at influencing others, that they are automatically going to know the best way to represent the work that they do on paper to a philanthropic organization. Um, it's an entire industry yes. and that, and, and, and nobody's born with it. And most of the people who we fund are coming out of communities where they've been impacted by injustice and injustice systems. Right? So that means that they likely would did not go to a school where during career day, they talked about philanthropy as one of the professional uh, options that you could pursue. So they don't know anything about how to do this, and they shouldn't be expected to. And so what we believe is that what you do, which is so amazing, is that you're going to provide them with that input to how they can best represent the work that they did do, how they can strengthen the work that they do, how they can um, organize themselves in such a way that, they, that people will better understand what they can contribute to making a difference. And so that's why. Yep. Uh, great. That's the. I think that's the. If I could have written your answer, I would have written. <laughs> mine wouldn't have been written as well. The. Um, but no, it's a, it's a great. Obviously, helpful for me uh, to, to hear from our partners why they like it. Uh, and yeah, and our mission is to educate the public about philanthropy. 
you're exactly right. There's all kinds of people in the world who have encountered a problem and have the beginnings or even more than the beginnings of a solution to that problem, right? And that is a lot for one person to have done. <laughs> and yeah. we currently live in a society that demands that they also have expertise in philanthropy, which is entirely different than encountering a problem and learning a solution to it. Right. Um, and I, you know, there's a, there's lots of misconceptions that we help address here. Um, and we are doing a, uh, we'll be doing a training session with some of your folks next week talking about different um, entity types, 501c3s versus LLCs versus these other things, right? Which, which is, you know, even to me, it's worked in philanthropy for a long time. It's just accountants prattle. And when I'm, I, when I'm evaluating a grant, right? If it's, 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 will they be able to accomplish the social change I want to accomplish? And that's a different, and then, and then some accountant tells me if it's like, if I'm allowed to give a grant to this organization or not, because the paperwork's in order. Like it's, I don't, that's not something that I need to know in order to decide if I want to give to them. Sometimes there are groups I'd like to give to can't because this giving vehicle needs to go needs to needs to operate in this way and this way, right? And there's really no way. It's a very small percentage of people in the world that understand how that works. Right? It's and a philanthropic alphabet soup and most people don't get taught how to read that alphabet. <laughs> I mean even you know, even people who are actual experts in like how a private foundation works, they may not understand the intricate differences between a private foundation and an operating foundation. Or absolutely uh, or or they're not gonna know how a European foundation operates. Uh, and, in fact, and sometimes the laws in how philanthropy works between different countries, what we would do in one country might actually be um, illegal in a different in country. Another, yeah. uh, there, are, there are countries, for instance, where if a foundation gives you a grant, it has to be restricted. If you don't spend all of it, you return it to the foundation. If you were to do that in the U.S., it would be tax fraud. Right. And how would any oh. – there's, really no, there's really no way – because the donor took the tax deduction when they gave it to you. If you then give them the money back, that, that's, that's a very big crime. <laughs> you, you really can't do it that way, but it's how they do it. And actually, it makes sense. I didn't spend yeah. all the money you gave me. Here's it back. Give it to other grantees, right? You would be committing a crime at that point. Right. A and, uh, I, and I've actually had people come to me and ask, like, I, I need to give this money back, right? I'm like, no, do not give the money. Never, anyone listening to the podcast now, never give the money back. <laughs> never. never. Give make, them, make them take it back. <laughs> they, I mean, even if they, I, and honestly, we t we've had people who um, they don't usually want the money. No, they back. don't. They don't ever. They're not. They they're not going to ask. They're not going to ask for what it back. What you do is you just make it clear how you can spend well, the money in a way that's going to support. It's the just a. It's an exact. I've had, we've had people ask me like we didn't spend everything we said. We gave them a budget, right? It said we were going to spend this much. It actually cost less. Do I need to return the money? They've had, they've asked me that. Yeah, no, I they asked me too. <laughs> <laughs> they, that's, honestly, that's not even the dumbest question I've been asked about philanthropy. Oh no, not at all. And these are none of these people are dumb. Right. They're also they're they're right. usually the extremely yeah, you no, know, and, and it's a it's a profession. Many about a third of the evaluators in our committee are professional philanthropists, which is another thing I have to explain to folks sometimes. Right? Sometimes you're applying to a family fund. It's a, the family meets once a year. They might have family. They got all the things that families have, right? Interpersonal differences and all, and, and, and family dynamic issues, uh, and uh, you know some families can come to can build consensus easily. Others not so much, right? Other times you might apply to a foundation that's that's called so and so family foundation, right? But it's staffed, but none of those family members are alive anymore, and it's right. and it's staffed right. by professionals. The, the in Chicago exactly. there's the Robert McCormick Foundation. 
McCormick founded the Chicago Tribune. None of the McCormicks are involved in that. There's professionals working there. Uh, and some of them are on our committee. And when you apply to them, it's not, you know, that's a professional with a stack of really good grant proposals. And if, exactly. you, don't get, if you don't get funded, the reason you didn't get funded is because you weren't one of the ones that they picked. Right. <laughs> and that's not a comprehensive answer. <laughs> But it's the answer every time. If you didn't get funded, it's because you weren't one of the ones that they picked. They had too many applications. Yours is probably very good. Let's let's get in and talk about what we can do with it. Uh, and uh, I assume all of your grantees who opt into us, they're going to get all their grants, right? Uh, but we will do our best to help them. Uh, if you're out there in the world and, you, and you're running a giving circle or you're some kind of program with a large number of grant proposals, you should consider a co-review partnership with the Unfunded List. You can be cool like our friend Aaliyah. I want to thank you uh, very much for joining me um, for a good long interview. I'm sure the folks will benefit from hearing about your work. I look forward to co-reviewing CGI fund proposals for many years to come. Uh, I will uh, keep doing it uh, until uh, we until we actually do have until uh, I, I promise I'll keep reviewing proposals with you until we actually get reparations for all those incarcerated folks, no matter how long that takes. I'll keep reading Beautiful. the proposals. Thank you very much, Aaliyah, for joining me at the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. Good luck with your funding, and I look forward to reading more of your proposals. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for joining us.